We're in John chapter 20. A bullhorn would probably be better, wouldn't it? <laughs> because this is a picnic together in many respects, feel free to get coffee as you need to. I'm sure there's some breakfast that's left over. You are welcome to make yourself at home. This is like a giant camp out on the land together. John chapter 20. If you have your bulletin or you have your Bible with me, uh, with you, would you open with me to John 20? And we are going to read verse 1 down through verse 18. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And moms and dads, it's okay to yell for your children's names if they're out running about. This is the Word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God And your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things, and that he had said these things to her. The grass withers, the flowers fade, my friends, but God's word, God's word indeed stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Have you ever seen a game changer? Like, you know, the last 
play the game when the team comes back and the running back is running down the field and he is like certain to score and he celebrates too early and he fumbles on the two-yard line. That's a game changer. Or like the Texas Tech uh, UVA basketball championship, right? Texas Tech roared back and only to make the final shot and it was blocked. That's a game changer. My friend um, told me a story not long ago about a game-changing experience in his life where he was to go back to the home he grew up in. It was in Mississippi. And he was to go to the door of the house where he grew up. And he was to knock on the door, no matter who lived there. And he was to ask them. And he was to say to them, Sir, 37 years ago, I grew up in this house. And my counselor has told me that I'm to come back to this very house and to knock on the door And if it would be so kind as the people who live here now, if you would let me in, because I'm supposed to stand in the place in this house where 37 years ago, I heard that my mom and my dad tragically died in a car accident. And since that day, everything about my life has been different. My education became different. My career is different. My marriage has been affected by it. My relationships are affected by it. And they tell me that I need to come and stand in this very place and relive the moment where I found out the most traumatic news of my life. That's a game changer. Have you ever had a game changer? Or a game changer like the story I heard where there's a young boy who was 12 years old. This happened not long ago. And and his mother left the house to go to the grocery store. Just a quick trip down to the store. Only she never came back. Within a mile of her house, she was struck by a driver and killed. And his father, so utterly despondent and grieving over the death of his wife, refused to ever mention her name again or talk about her death. That's a game changer. Have you ever had a game changer in your life? Have you ever had something that's happened to you that changed the course of your life? We shudder in horror to think about the game-changing experience that happened. I hesitate even to mention it in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka. Their lives will never be the same. 207 people were killed in an attack on Easter morning around the world today. Or even more horrifying to me, the story that I heard about the young girl whose father would come late at night and visit her in her bedroom. And her life has never been the same again. Still to this day, she can hear the cadence of footprints in certain ways. And the fear and the torment of those days come haunting back to her. That's a game changer. Have you ever had a game changer in your life? Something that happened to you where your life was never the same again. What if, friends, what if there could be a game changer that didn't bring the trauma that we have experienced into our life. But what, could, what if there could be an event that was so amazing, so life-changing, that it actually brought healing into our life? Well, your life was completely different because of this event, not for the negative, but for the positive, where you began to see how unreconciled relationships could again have hope, where your marriage, which seemed like it was, it was on the rocks, began to have some sense of joy and life, 
What if there could be an event in your life and in mine that could begin to undo all the trauma in our life? Albeit very slowly and not taking away any of that pain, but being a balm for us in the midst of it. What if there could be an event that was so life-changing, it brought about not trauma, but brought about healing? Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that event. Amen? Amen? And we have, as we look upon the beauty of Christ's resurrection... A gospel-infused, life-shaping event with which we will never be the same if you really understand it. But I'm concerned, frankly, that you don't. And John is concerned that we don't. Because in this story, he tells us that the resurrection is the hope that you always hope existed. It is the hope that you always wanted to have. It is the hope that you've always dreamed of beneath every fairy tale, beneath every story, beneath every good movie is the promise of resurrection, of return. And here it is. But to get it, you have to see three things about the nature of faith. That's what the book of John's about, right? He wrote these things that you might believe. So let's try our hand at it. Let's see if we have the kind of faith that John wants us to have in order to have hope in this game-changing event that we call the resurrection. Three things about faith. Number one, first, I want you to see the resistance to faith in the story of the resurrection. Verse 1 of chapter 20 says it was still dark. That Mary comes to the tomb while it was still dark. You may remember that Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, remember he came to Jesus in a, on a dark and stormy night. Darkness in the book of John especially often means not just a time of day, but a state of the heart. So here Mary comes with, in despair and loss of hope. And she comes to the tomb. And Mary carries spices to the tomb because she was expecting to find a dead body. Do not think that Mary came to the tomb expecting to find the resurrected Lord. She didn't get it. And we know she didn't get it because she said even to the gardener, where have you put the body? And not only Mary didn't get it, but the disciples didn't get it. Friends, like you guys get up early for your kids' soccer games on Saturday morning. The disciples didn't even get up. Mary has to go back to, her house, to their house to get them. The dude slept in. I mean, you would think that if Jesus were to say to you, on the third day I'm going to rise again, you can destroy this temple, but on the third day, I'm going to raise it up. I'm going to die, but I'm going to be resurrected again, according to the scriptures. I'm going to die. I mean, for goodness sake, the Romans knew it. That's why they put guards at the tomb. But the disciples never caught it. And so she went to the tomb expecting to find a body. When I was six or seven years old, uh, my parents took me um, to the Royal Gorge. Anybody ever been to the Royal Gorge near Canyon City in Colorado? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It freaked me out. It's like this 880-foot expanse across these two huge cliffs. The Arkansas River, you know, if you go upstream from Tulsa, you'll find it eventually. Good luck. It's there. And over this, it's like dental floss hung on the horizon. It's amazing. It's like a spider spun a web across these two inaccessible cliffs. And we went to the Royal Gorge as a family. And I remember being like stunned at a young age going like, why would somebody want to walk on that bridge? Like they have a visitor center. This is weird. And like you can pay money to go on 
a sightseeing tour across the canyon in a gondola? No, thank you. And now if you go there today, they've got, a, for crying out loud, a zip line across the canyon. Give me a break. What? I was scared to death. I was six years old, but I still remember it very well. And I remember that we saw a 15-passenger bus drive over that bridge. And I was still convinced that it would not hold my weight. And my brother, my oldest brother, Brian, I remember said to me, Blake, it's okay. You can walk out here with me. It can hold the weight of a bus. It will hold you too. And I sat there scared to death and I just stared. The idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like the Royal Gorge Bridge for many of you. Some of you are here for the first time in church. You haven't been in church in a long time. We are so glad you're here. Please keep coming. Please keep coming. And you think this Christianity thing is great. It's great. It helps people become better people. It makes us more generous. It's great. It helps the social fabric of Tulsa, you know, move. It's wonderful. Until you get to this stuff that's not possible, like the resurrection. Like, don't you know that modern medicine has taught us that people don't rise again from the dead? It's not possible. I mean, they've done a lot of things with modern medicine. They, like right now, the whole borough of Brooklyn is being saved from a measles outbreak because they can inoculate everybody and protect the citizens in Brooklyn and New York. 650 years ago, a third of Europe was wiped out because of something very similar called the bubonic plague. And here, we just inoculate. It's fine. They can do amazing things with medicine. They know how to help you who are diabetic be able to... Manage your diabetes. They've done amazing. My, my dad, like just last night, told me that Israeli doctors have figured out how to print a 3D heart with human cells. That's amazing. All the advancement of medicine is just amazing. But you know what they can't do? They can't make you live forever. Or philosophy. Every school, every study of philosophy... We study every religion. They all purport different ways for us to receive nirvana or to achieve the best life now or whatever it may be. But only Christianity holds out the hope that the leader of the movement, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, died. And not only did he die, but he rose again on the third day. That's crazy. And you want to verify again and again and again and again and again and again everything in your life. Listen, uh, history will tell you that when Tacitus was writing to Nero, the historian Tacitus was writing to Nero, you know, not more than 30 years after this event, he was explaining the resurrection to Nero. And he was saying that Nero blamed the burning of Rome on Christians who believed the strange doctrine that we have not yet been able to disprove the resurrection. And don't you think, friends, that the resurrection was a sham, then certainly by now that it would have been, would have been disproven. The burden of proof certainly is on the world, and the world has hacked away at it for 2,000 years, and not yet has one splinter of the cross or one chip of the stone of the tomb fallen. Mary went to the tomb because she expected to embalm Jesus' body. In the ancient Near East... There were two stages of burial. There was the first stage of burial where they brought the body into the tomb, which is probably why Joseph of Arimathea 
may have been renting his tomb. Nicodemus and Joseph prepared the body, put it in the burial plot, and then it would be cured and put uh, spices would be put over it. It would be prepared because at some point, perhaps a year later, the tomb then would be opened. That Roman seal would be cracked, but it wouldn't be able to be cracked until they would go in and get the bones of the dead and put them in ossuaries, and they would collect the ossuaries. That's how in the Old Testament, for example, they say they would carry so-and-so's bones back to Canaan. How did they do that? Well, they had two stages of burial, and they would collect the bones after the spices and the oils, right, were put on the body in order to make the whole process palpable to the senses. And so Mary goes to the tomb to assuage her grief and assuage her hopelessness. And maybe in preparing Jesus' body, she might have some sense of solace in her love for her Savior. The resistance of faith is a very real thing because it is impossible to believe. We believe in the resurrection. And the gospel says that our faith is a gift. It is a gift. And so what does this teach us? It teaches us that you can't muster up enough faith to believe. It teaches some of you who are here for the first time in a while or back in church. It teaches you that you shouldn't wait till tomorrow to believe. Don't wait until you've gained a few more pounds or until your diabetes is out of control or until your heart arrhythmia gets worse. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Strike while the iron's hot. It says believe. Believe now. The whole of the New Testament is to hold out the hope of the resurrection and say, believe it. Today is the day of salvation for you. Don't put it off. If somebody were to knock on your door and you were to say, ah, I'll get it tomorrow. And you go to get the door tomorrow, they won't be there. Or if somebody says to you, hey, I want you to meet with the board of the company at 4 o'clock because we want to make you the CEO. And you think, oh, I think I'll play an early round of golf today. And you don't go to the meeting, they're not having that meeting again. Some of you can feel the Holy Spirit working in you. You can feel the Lord shaping you and changing you. Don't resist that. Work together with Him. Cooperate with what the Lord is doing in your life and believe. And Christians, I think that you don't believe this either, quite frankly. Because it says that faith is a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And if you really understood the resurrection for what it is, then our lives would be melted with hospitality and generosity and utter humility and gratitude. I mean, we would walk around with the most amazing experience of hope of all the people in the world. Is that what characterizes us? Friends, if you believe the resurrection, then it bleeds into every part of your being. If it's really true, then it shapes all of you. Does it? I don't know. I know my own heart. And I know that many times I go to the tomb and I come to Easter and I feel just like Peter, James, and John. Huh. Another Easter. Wonderful. The bagpipes will be good. But friends, Easter is there to shape you and mold you, and it is to melt you in gratitude. Do you recognize what he has done for you? It is a gift. You know that the resurrection is a game changer for you when you begin to believe. And you also know it's a game changer for you, Christian, when it melts you with gratitude. 
and it makes you profoundly thankful that Christ, your Savior, did this for you. The resurrection is not only true, but it is like the Royal Gorge Bridge. It is like the bridge that we must walk on to discover the hope that we always hope existed, which takes us to the second point, the reasonability of our faith. This is the counterpoint. Not only is faith is, are, are we resistant to faith, but faith is reasonable. Notice what happens when, when, uh, when Mary goes. She sees. John sets this up five times in this passage. It talks about people seeing. Mary saw. And then John saw the tomb. Blepe, blepe in Greek, it says. It sets us up. Blepe, blepe. And then Peter looks. He sees. Right? He says the exact same phrase that he says of John. He looks in the tomb and he sees, except he changes the word. Theori, which is the word from which we get the English word theory. Peter, it says, he came following him. He went into the tomb and he theorized about the linen cloths. He saw the linen cloth and he thought to himself, now wait a minute. The disciples didn't take him because they would never leave the linen cloths there and carry a body out in the open like that unless they desecrate their leader. They would never take the body out of the tomb without taking the linen cloths with them. And tomb raiders certainly wouldn't have taken the body without taking the cloths with them. You can hear Peter theorizing. He's, he's thinking. He's thinking about the resurrection. Our, our faith is not ungrounded. It's reasonable. And you can see Peter in this passage going, wait a minute. Why? No? Why? Gosh, no? Why? No? Wait a minute. And you can see him get it. He's theorizing. He's thinking. You know, the strangest uh, of twists and oddest turns of the Christian story, C.S. Lewis says, is the certain proof that, Christ- that humanity didn't make this stuff up. The resurrection stories are far too detailed, they're far too self-deprecating of the culture, and they're far too depreciating of the disciples to possibly have been made up. They're too detailed. Anybody could have asked the Roman soldiers, did you really kill him? They are expert at killing people. They knew that Jesus was dead. Well, they could have asked the 500 people who saw Jesus risen from the dead. Was he really there? Paul even encourages us to do so. Certainly, they would say, well, no. They could have asked Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, did you put him in the right tomb? Like, did Mary have the wrong address? The way that the story is told is not like fictional stories are told in the ancient Near East. It's far too detailed for that to have happened. The early church's emphasis on moving worship from the Sabbath of Saturday to Sunday is very hard to explain unless something striking really did happen on that day. A gradual or even a stunning dawning of faith is hardly sufficient to explain the sudden change of the day of worship. The stories and the results of the resurrection are just simply too detailed to be examples of first century tribute, hagiography, myth, or legend. The story is crazy unless it happened. It's also too self-deprecating. The story is full of cultural faux pas. I mean, the woman's testimony was not even legal to be admissible in a public, uh, the court of public opinion or the court of the Roman legal system. 
even after he rose uh, from the dead, the disciples, right? They, they didn't even connect the dots. There's no quoting of Psalm 16 or Psalm 110 or Isaiah 53. It says, as of yet, they did not understand the scripture. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's extremely de- de- depreciative of the disciples. It's full of cultural faux pas. It's crazy. Unless it really happened. You have to work against history to explain it away. And friends, you don't do that in any other area of your life. Why would you be inconsistent here? And humility and gratitude are to characterize our life as a church. Amen? This is our mark. Not our knowledge of theology. It is our expressions of love. And the hard edges of Christianity must be there for love to mean something. Otherwise, it's just sentiment. It's just tolerance for tolerance sake. It's just waving your thumb and putting it into the air of political whims. But if it's really bound by the truth of the doctrine of the resurrection, then your love has surface area. And you change the world in the gifts the Lord has given you. You know, you take two guys who are climbing ladders that they use perhaps to put these tents up. You have Mr. A who's climbing a really weak ladder. It looks like it's about to break, but it's solid and it's going to hold. And you have Mr. B who's super confident and he's got a ladder that has a design flaw in it. And Mr. A is like barely able to crawl up this ladder. And Mr. B is full of confidence in his ladder with his design flaw. Mr. A Hardly has faith. Mr. B, full of confidence and faith. One of them comes crashing down. Which one? Mr. B. Why? Because it's not about the amount of faith you have. It's about the strength of the ladders. And though the resurrection looks like, some of you, looks like a crickety ladder, it will hold you, and it will hold the world's anxieties, and it will spin the world on its edge because everything is different because Christ rose again from the dead. Third, not only do we have to recognize the resistance to faith and our hard-heartedness, but we have to recognize the reasonability of our faith. Think. Don't turn your brains off when you come to look at God's Word. Think. Theorize. Think with Peter. And thirdly, you have to see the humility of faith. When Mary is standing there weeping outside the tomb and she sees the two angels, they ask her a question. Woman, why are you weeping? And then she hears the same question again from the gardener. Woman, why are you weeping? And she doesn't even recognize Jesus. Like that's how much she didn't connect the dots. We don't know what his body looked like. He was recognizable, but he was more. He was the same, but different, more. And it was when Jesus did what to Mary that Mary found out who he was, saw who he was? It was when Jesus said her name, Mary. And then Mary says to Jesus, Rabboni, which in, in your Bibles, in, our, in the bulletins, in the ESV, in the NIV, it, it, I don't know why it does this, but it translates it as teacher. But, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Eli, Eli, my God, my God. And in Aramaic, to end the word in an I means to say, my teacher. Mary looks at Jesus and says, my teacher, my Lord. And then Jesus does something amazing. 
he called his disciples. At some point, he stopped calling them disciples and started calling them friends. But it wasn't until after the resurrection that he started calling them brothers. And here he says to Mary, Mary, go and tell my brothers that I have risen from the dead, that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. In other words, Mary, all that I have, I'm giving to you. The inheritance is wide open, and you get to experience in this resurrection power the glory of being a daughter of the King. And I want you just to think about this for just a second. That Mary Magdalene, the woman possessed by seven demons, running through the streets, half-clothed, the one who was the furthest from righteous early in her life, for just a second, Mary Magdalene, this demon-possessed, half-crazed woman who came to meet with Jesus, was the sole member of Christ's church. And he used her to bring the message of God's resurrection to the world. Isn't that amazing? For those few brief moments, she was it. And the balance of the hope of the world hung on Mary Magdalene, which is good news for people like me. Because we're never beyond the bounds of God's grace. There was a, um, a woman who had a child who was telling me her story um, when we lived in New Jersey, and um, she um, had baby after baby after baby after baby after baby, and um, she was totally overwhelmed. Her husband was working a lot. She was home with her kids. She had postpartum depression, and she snapped. And she wrote a letter to her husband, and she said, I'm not doing myself in, but I'm out of here. I can't handle it. And she ran away. She left a note and she disappeared. And this husband, who realizes his wife one week later is not coming back, two weeks later is not coming back, he hires a private investigator to go and track his wife down. And this private investigator calls the husband and says, hey, I found your wife. She's a couple of states over and she's in a hotel room. And this husband drives a couple of states over and he knocks on her hotel room door and she opens the door and she falls into his arms and she says, I didn't think you'd come for me. But you did. And friends, I don't know what the trauma is in your life that you've experienced, but you have a father who comes to you who doesn't just span state lines, but he stands, he spans the universe and he comes just for you. And you see his presence with you with arms open wide, not saying Mary to you, but he's calling your name. And he says, I know it's hard to believe, but would you think with me? It happened. It's true. It's the game changer you've always wanted to have. And it can set your life not on a trajectory toward trauma. It'll set your life on the trajectory toward healing. And not only in you, but also in all of your relationships. And not only in your relationships, but also all of creation will one day bow in worship of the resurrected Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Your Father came for you. Your Savior rose again from the dead for you. And He did it because He loved you. Though faith is resistant, it is reasonable. Don't turn your brains off.
Engage them with God's word. Read the book of John. Struggle through it. Some of you need to cross the bridge. And I know it looks like dental floss on the horizon to you. It will hold a van. It will certainly hold you too. And some of you need to realize that the proof of the resurrection power in your life is that it melts you with a tremendous sense of humility. And you need to spend the afternoon in gratitude that your king rose again from the dead for you and for us. He has created a game-changing event that we all share as brothers and sisters. And it moves us together as one body, diverse though our stories are, toward healing together. And it's with that hope, the hope we always hope existed, that really exists, that is the foundation for the rest of our lives now and on to eternity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have caused a game changer to happen in our life. And it's ours for the taking. Father, would you help us to take it, to believe? Lord, we know that faith is impossible, but it's a gift. And you have opened our hearts to believe. So, Father, would you help us to believe? Would you help us to see the empty tomb? Would you help us to look beyond our fear of death, which is very real for many of us? Would you help us to recognize that you came to conquer sin and death, our two greatest enemies forever? And you have caused us to begin a trajectory of healing by faith in your finished works. Not our own righteousness, but yours, Lord Jesus Christ, credited to us. Hallelujah. Amen.